0: We were young until we were but the books stay the same. Ooh. Re-reading, reading all the red books.
1: I've got two little baby Diet Cokes sitting next to me for this.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, do you want to start?
1: Oh, sure, okay. Should I now imitate? You imitating me and just, like, we progressively make the intro more awkward as we go on?
0: I mean, that's, that's an idea.
1: <laughs> Welcome to Reread, <laughs> the podcast where we reread books we read when we were younger and see if they hold up. Right now, we're doing The Chronicles of Narnia.
0: How exciting.
1: Woo.
0: Yeah, last time we talked about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And now we're reading or talking about The Magician's Nephew, which on my on my edition, it says book six in The Chronicles of Narnia.
1: And mine says book one. Uh... Oh, my f-
0: boys, what if it's a Sam's branch? It could be.
1: It's got a big book one on the side.
0: Well, I think let me let me see, because this is actually your copy of Chronicles of Narnia. This was These
1: are both my copies. <laughs> well, yes,
0: but this one was printed in 1971 it looks like.
1: This is 1994 is well, this particular copy. Oh, they're not giving me an exact date for when this particular copy was printed.
0: It was a long, long time ago. Yep. In a galaxy far away. <laughs> Anyway, so I think I mentioned before that my only memory of this book is that Aslan creates the world of Narnia. And I remembered nothing else from this book. So it was like really a whole new experience for me.
1: Yeah, it was actually pretty similar for me in that I didn't remember much about it at all. The only thing I remembered... And I think this is because this has been reinforced in my head by The Magician's TV show, (laughs) um, which is like, well, The Magician's is very clearly riffing on on Narnia. So, like, thing I remembered from this book, besides the apple tree, which I knew there was an apple tree, because Eden, the only other thing I remembered was the, like, in-between place with the pools and that you would go in different pools to get to different worlds, which is something that is also in The Magician's because the magicians is just a response to Narnia, essentially. But yeah, so I, I did remember that part. And that is pretty much, well, that and like, I remembered that you, the white witches in it and things like that, the professors in it. But like, in terms of actual plot points, I really, it was very fresh for me as well.
0: Before we actually get into serious discussion, there's one section I would like to talk about really, one one quote. Okay. Now, if you recall, last week you gave me a lot of <laughs> how I want to see Peter pee. Everyone's gonna hate me and love you. So that's the that's the. I dynamic. feel
1: like we already got there with the pee. You know what? I noted that. If you're talking about the part where Polly goes to like the river or something, I am. Yes, I almost wrote that down and was like, is this where Polly is peeing? Then I didn't, because I was like, maybe we cannot talk about characters peeing on this podcast.
0: Oh, no, no. I'm going to quote this line for posterity and for vindication. When he came back, Polly went down and had her bath. At least she said that was what she'd been doing. But we know she was not much of a swimmer, and perhaps it is best not to ask too many questions. Morgan! There's Peen in this book,
1: yes, which was exactly what you wanted. So you got what you wanted. Clive came I'm happy for you.
0: You know what? This book gets five p streams out of five. There we go. Oh that's God. over. The episode's over. We're done. We don't need to talk about anything else.
1: <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take that point and say that I'm so glad we're reading this right after. "Blind the Witch in the Wardrobe" because (laughs) I do feel it is so much responding to like problems with that book. (laughs) So just as you were complaining about not seeing Peter Peter peeing, I think this book is responding to a lot of other maybe criticisms that were lobbed at Clive, or maybe things he had in the like what five years since he'd written "Blind the Witch in the Wardrobe" thought better of. I'm um, not entirely sure when he wrote this, but it was the last book he wrote.
0: Well, I did some research on that. So he actually started working on this book right after the line, The Witch and the Wardrobe, because a friend of his wrote him a letter or something, basically asking, what's up with the, the lamppost in the first book? And C.S. Lewis is like, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> Maybe I should have thought about that. And so he literally wrote this book just to answer that question, which is probably not the best foundation to write any book. And I was very wary because prequels that are created to answer hyper-specific plot holes, either they, they're, they, they tend to not do well.
1: I think we can just say prequels in general don't normally go over well. Sure. They, in general, because they're trying to answer, like, very specific questions and things like that, I think they have a tendency to fail.
0: Right. They're, it's a trap that basically they're just to sort of set up the movies or books or whatever that already exist to explain plot points and that that never really needed explaining. Like, why the Death Star had this built-in flaw. We didn't need to see a whole movie to explain that one piece of information. We did not really need a book to explain why there's a light post in the middle of nowhere in Narnia. That said, you wanna know what I found most surprising about this book? Did you like it? I loved it.
1: Yes! Our podcast has succeeded.
0: (laughs) Well, I should say that I loved the first half a lot. The second half was a little more hit and miss for me, but I loved the first half. I loved the trip into Charn. And I suppose, should we give a plot summary for people who don't remember this book?
1: Yeah, so we have our main characters are Polly and Diggory. And they live next door to each other. Yes, they're both very like early 1900s names. And they both criticize each other's names. So I was like... All right, Clive, you understand. I mean, his name is Clive. His
0: name is Clive Steepleson or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's Clive. <laughs> yeah, Clive Stapleson. <laughs> and uh, so they meet because Diggory has just moved in with his aunt and uncle because his mother is not doing so well. And so the two kids, you know, do normal kid things. Um, it's a pretty like rainy, damp summer, apparently. So they spend a lot of times indoors and they discover it. I was actually pretty confused like, by this, but like. Their houses, I guess, are conjoined. And if you go up in the attic of one, you can like walk to other attics.
0: I didn't really understand that either, but I'm guessing it's a
1: British, early
0: thing. 20th century British thing.
1: Yeah, I would be very curious to see pictures of how these houses are supposed to look. But I guess <laughs> they hear that a house, the house over from Diggory's is empty. So they're like, maybe we can go through the attics. And get into this empty house, but instead, they accidentally go into Dickory's Uncle Andrew's study. And Uncle Andrew is known to be very eccentric and mad, and uh, he's very excited to have (laughs) them arrive.
0: Um, (laughs) That's yeah. That (sighs) talk about that.
1: Yes, um, because he needs two children for an experiment he's doing, so he tricks. (laughs) Polly. It sounds so
0: inherently creepy.
1: I mean, it's very creepy. You're supposed to know it's creepy. So he has these sets of rings, yellow rings and green rings, and um, he tricks Polly into taking, I think the yellow rings, right? Those are the ones that...
0: Yeah, the yellow rings take them to the in-between place, and the green rings bring them back so to speak although we learn a little bit more about how they function a little more
1: nuance so he tricks polly into taking a yellow ring she vanishes and then he explains to degree that he's a magician and he's been experimenting with traveling to other worlds and these rings the yellow rings take you to another world the green rings should take you home And he's like well you'll just have to since polly doesn't have a green ring you're gonna have to take two green rings and bring one to her otherwise she'll be lost forever so Diggory travels to go retrieve Polly, and they, he arrives at this in-between place, and at first neither Diggory nor Polly remember quite who they are, but their memories come back to them pretty quickly as they speak to each other, and they decide instead of just going straight back, they're in this like wooded area with a whole bunch of pools, and they came out of one pool, and they're like, well, why don't we try and go to other worlds? Let's check out some of these other pools. And Polly, very smartly, is like, we should definitely mark our home pool to make sure we can find our way back. So they do that, and then they travel to one of the other pools and go through, and they arrive in the land of Charn. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Charn? Charn. I
0: mean, how else would you pronounce it?
1: I don't know. But (laughs) I always worry about pronouncing a fantasy name. And Charn is very dead. There's just no one around. The sun looks like it's dying a painful death. But they do some exploring and they come into this hall with all of these, like, frozen figures. Not actually frozen, they're just statue-esque. And, like, at first these people look nice enough, but then as they continue on, the people start looking, like, more and more cruel and not nice. And then they realize there's this little platform with a bell and a hammer on it that basically tells them that now that they've read this, they have to ring the bell with a hammer Otherwise, they will go mad from wondering what would have happened if they did. And Polly's like, we, we definitely shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. And Diggory's like, no, I can feel it. I'm already going mad. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. I am like very concerned about the state of my mental health right now. We need to ring this. And she's like, you know what, screw you, I'm going home. So she goes to like put on her ring to um go back to the in-between place. And Diggory stops her and rings the bell. And this brings back to life the very beautiful and cruel woman at the end of the line of statue people, who is revealed to be is it Jadis or Jadis? See fantasy names.
0: I I would say Jadis.
1: Jadis. Okay. Jadis. That makes sense because it rhymes with Judas. Not that she plays the Judas role in anything, but I just think that probably that's intentional.
0: Yeah. She's very multifaceted in the biblical figures that she seems to be playing in this book.
1: That's very true. So anyhow, she wakes up and she's like awesome i'm awake and also i'm an empress and i'm the best and i'm awesome and i'm the one who made the city all dead like this because my sister was waging war against me and i couldn't have that so i said a super evil word and stopped everything and polly really doesn't like her but diggory diggory's into her he's like she's amazing i mean wow. yeah
0: she's a babe
1: yeah so she gets them to take her back to in between place and uh, she like grabs onto I think Polly, yes, Polly's hair while they're traveling. And it turns out you don't need a ring yourself as long as you're holding someone who has a ring in order to travel.
0: My cover of my book actually has the most amazing illustration of this moment of oh the queen God. holding onto Polly's
1: hair. I feel like we should include the covers of both of our books somewhere, just for the comparison's sake. Yeah. Like seventies Chronicles of Narnia versus 90s Chronicles of Narnia.
0: Yeah, and I imagine that neither of them are that good.
1: I love my covers, so speak for yourself. <laughs> I mean, they're both my covers.
0: Look, they're they're not goosebump covers where there there's texture to it and I I like that.
1: Well, mine is my cover is uh, Dairy and the Apple Tree, which I think is very appropriate. Is that
0: the one where he's wearing, like, a pilgrim's outfit?
1: Yes, it is the pilgrim's outfit because it's the early 1900s, and that means pilgrims.
0: I uh, Makes <laughs> sense to me.
1: Although, like, the book does specifically call out the, like, starched collars or whatever they had to wear back then. Yeah. So maybe that's what they were trying to show is that starched collar. I guess so. But anyhow, when they're <laughs> in the in-between place, they try and overpower... Jadis, but she manages to grab onto Diggory when he jumps into his home pool and they travel back to Uncle Andrew's study. And immediately once she's there, she sets about getting Uncle Andrew to like be her servant and she wants to go out and conquer the world. And Polly and degree are fairly concerned about this. Uh, it turns out they didn't need to be as concerned as they were because her magic doesn't work in this world. But she is still super strong and she's also seven feet tall. So she can still do like a decent amount of damage.
0: And she's a babe.
1: And she's a babe. Like Uncle Andrew keeps being like, she's a babe.
0: Uh. Yeah.
1: Just so much. Uh, Yeah. He says she was a damn fine woman.
0: Isn't it funny to think about that... I mean, this is skipping the head to the end, but the last words that, theoretically, C.S. Lewis ever wrote for the Narnia series <laughs> was, but she was a damn fine woman, sir. A damn fine woman.
1: That is really actually quite amusing. It's it's something. Anyway. Anyhow, there yeah. A lot of shenanigans and... There ends up being a huge ruckus outside of the house where, you you know, the police are trying to arrest Janus and there's, like, a cabbie in there and a horse and she's, like, torn the, like, lamppost in half and is wielding part of it as a weapon to, like, beat people with. And then Polly and Dickory make their way in there and, using their rings, take her back to the in-between place, but they also accidentally drag along with them Uncle Andrew, the cabbie, and his horse, Strawberry. Once they're in the in-between place, they end up jumping into another pool and also bringing all of these people. They're trying to bring Jadis back to Charn, but they get the wrong pool and they end up in a world that's just being born. And the cabbie sings a little hymn just because he feels like it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, another voice starts singing and the world starts being created. And you see like the stars light up and whole world come to be. Let and there
0: be light, yada, yada, yada. Yep,
1: yep, all of those things. And then they realize the one doing the singing is a lion, our old friend.
0: Well, technically, if we read it in chronological order, it would not be an old friend at all, but.
1: No, but to us, having read the line the witch in the wardrobe we recognize him as Aslan.
0: yes i'd consider him more of an acquaintance at this point but that's okay okay
1: sure <laughs> that's valid i guess we didn't spend a huge i mean we did see him die and come back to life in Lion, the witch in the wardrobe and i do feel like that elevates us to friend status kind of an intimate moment to share it's
0: it's like those moments in hollywood films where the the hero and the love interest are bonded through this shared trauma but you know that they are not going to last after the movie.
1: Yeah, they don't actually know each other that well. Yeah,
0: they're not actually compatible in any way. It's just that they have this one shared experience. There's a lot of adrenaline and anxiety and...
1: Yeah, trauma bond. Exactly.
0: That's how that's how I feel with Aslan. I I feel trauma bonded with him. <laughs>
1: uh, well, no one else does in this book. <laughs> they're all... And I, I do want to know, because I think it'll become irrelevant later... Um. The cabbie and Polly and Diggory all really are enchanted by the song. Uncle Andrew really doesn't like it. And he manages to basically convince his brain that there's no way that a lion can be singing. And so he's actually just walking around roaring. And he convinces himself of this to the fact that's what he actually hears. So anyhow, the lion walks around and brings the world to life. He creates all these creatures. They're like born out of holes in the earth. And then he selects certain ones to become talking animals.
0: He boops them on the nose.
1: Yes, he does boop them. And then they, they come and join a little circle and then all of a sudden they can speak. And one of these is our friend Strawberry, the horse. And, uh... So then there's some little shenanigans afterwards with animals being like, we can speak. And Aslan being like, hi, this is a new world I've given you and there's already evil in it. (laughs) And none of them know what evil is. Uh While this is happening, uh, Jadis has gone off somewhere. She's disappeared. And Diggory wants to talk to Aslan about whether aslan can cure his mother because she's dying so he goes up to aslan he's like hey i would really appreciate if there's anything that can be done for my mother if you could help me out and aslan's like you brought evil into this world
0: you know aslan really does not hold it back first it was edmund being like do we do we need any more people to die for this guy and now he's like hey dude you f***ed up my world and you're gonna fix it And it's like, he didn't know any better.
1: Yeah, so he he makes Diggory tell him everything that happened to Janus. And Diggory, you know, understands he's done wrong and is very responsible and honest about saying what he'd done. Um, And then Aslan says, well, because a son of Adam messed up my world, then a son of Adam will fix it. So he decides that the cabbie will be the first king of Narnia. Um, (laughs) And then the cabbie's like, uh, that sounds lovely because I love the countryside and I really hate the city. And, like, this is the ultimate countryside because there is no city. But also, uh, my wife is back in London. So, like, I can't, bruh. And then Aslan's like, <laughs> I got you. And then uh, he brings the like, Happy's wife to Narnia. And both of them are very chill about suddenly being king and queen. They're, like, very down with it. And then he says, okay, Diggory, now you are going to go to this area north of Narnia where there's this garden. And in the middle of the garden, there's this apple tree. And an apple from that tree, like if we plant it here, it will help protect Narnia from this evil woman you've brought into our world. So go do that. And Polly volunteers to go with him. And Strawberry the horse is made into a flying horse called Fledge so he can transport them there.
0: I just want it on the record right now. I am against renaming Strawberry.
1: That's all. Yeah, we can get more into the the (laughs) naming politics. I would have been down if Strawberry had been named himself. But, like, Aslan renames him. And also, like,
0: Fledge is such a lame name.
1: I was just glad it wasn't, like, Pegasus. Because. Ah, uh,
0: yeah, sweet. So, uh, uh, yeah, this. Uh, uh, it's
1: Sam's going tricky, And there's one right outside my f-ing door
0: right now. He's trying to get into my shed. It w-
1: I was happy it wasn't a reference. I was very, very happy. C.S. Lewis held himself back. He was like, I'm not going to make a reference here. So good on him.
0: Yeah, unlike certain Polish fantasy writers that we know.
1: Huh. <sighs> I'm still so mad. But anyhow, so the three of them set off. They have a little journey. They end up stopping somewhere overnight. It's 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 pretty cute. <laughs> and then they eventually get to this garden, and it's immediately apparent to them that only Diggory can go in. They just kind of instinctively know this. So Diggory goes in, and as soon as he sees the apples, he's like very tempted to take another for his mother, but he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to. It it wouldn't be a good idea. And then as he's leaving, he sees Jadis there. And she's already has chowed down on one of these apples, Um, which by the way, a poem at the gate had said was not a good idea. Like you're not supposed to go in over the walls to get into the garden. You're not supposed to take an apple for yourself. You could only take it for like something else. So she's, she's already eaten one of these apples. She came in over the walls. So we already know she's, you know, if we didn't already know she was a bad guy, we'd know now.
0: Theoretically, she never saw the poem either given that she jumped over the wall. But
1: but yeah, so she tries to talk degree into taking an apple for his mom. And she's like, Aslan doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a bad dude, etc., etc. He's selfish, blah, blah, blah. She almost convinces him. But then she says that he could just go back and like no one would know. And he could just, you know, leave them all here, including the little girl, a.k.a. Polly, And that kind of snaps Degree out of it. He's like, I'm not listening to you. I would never leave Polly. I'm going to be a good person. So he just takes his one apple for Aslan and runs off with Polly and Fledge back to Aslan. And everyone's like, yay. They plant the apple. They uh, have a little mini coronation for the new King and Queen. The apple all has already grown into a tree and, uh, Aslan is like, good job. Now you can take an apple from this tree and you can feed it to your mom and she'll be healthy again. Diggory's like, oh, thank you so much. Can we go now? (laughs) So they have to retrieve Uncle Andrew who has been uh, tormented by the animals because he can't understand what they're saying because he's convinced himself he's like dreaming it all up. So they, they fetch him. They go back. They feed Diggory's mom the apple. She gets better. They plant the core of the apple along with all of the the magic rings in the backyard of diggory's place and the core grows into an apple tree that eventually gets knocked over in a storm and diggory has it made into a wardrobe that then goes in his house and that wardrobe is the wardrobe from the lion the witch in the wardrobe oh my god i forgot to say what happened with the lamppost going back (laughs) Really quickly, because Jadis was holding part of the lamppost when she was brought into Narnia, she like throws it at Aslan at some point and it hits him in the face. (laughs) And he doesn't even notice. He doesn't even register I I can
0: imagine the sound effect. Yeah, it's just like, boink! You know, it's just...
1: But it falls into the ground and then grows into a full lamppost because like this entire world is like growing right now. So anything that lands in the soil kind of immediately grows into something. And yeah, that's it turns out that Uncle Andrew has been a little bit made into a better person by his experience, and he doesn't try and do any more traveling to other worlds, but he still thinks fondly for some reason of Jadis. And that's why the last line of the book is, a dim fine woman.
0: A dim fine woman.
1: All right. End summary.
0: End summary. I guess overall, my opinion of this book is that, like, as I said in the last couple episodes or whatever... The line the witch in the wardrobe felt super super sloppy in terms of its references, theology, values all of the above. This one what I like is that there seems to be a lot more consistency to it. And I think a part of that is that of all the books I think this one took him the longest to write. And like I said he started right after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but he didn't actually finish it until after he finished the last battle. And so I think there's a lot more time that he spent with it, and you can feel it. It doesn't feel like a first draft. It feels like there are some ideas that he's really aiming for that are more consistently explored in this book. You know, ideas of temptation and original sin. I I dug it. I mean... It's great because it it starts out uh, – C.S. Lewis gets his anti-school agenda out very early on where he talks about how schools were usually nastier back then than now. And you'll see that's that's a motif that he repeats, not the school bit, but the motif that things were different back then and usually things were better back then. And that's something that continues throughout the book and is very, very consistent – and we get a lot of contrast between the sort of modern city world versus the countryside. A world that's dying versus a world that's just being born. And, and it's a lot more complex. And there's a lot more going on. And so it's a lot more interesting to read than the first book was.
1: And there's a lot more like new and different ideas happening. As far as I'm aware, and I could be wrong, this is the first instance of there being like a in-between place for worlds, which is something that, uh, as I've already mentioned, comes up in a lot of other fantasy stories after this. I can't say for sure if this is the origin place for that idea, but it's certainly the earliest instance of it I've read. And there's, uh, I was just really impressed by the fact that we had commented so much on the references without actually using them. And in the beginning of this book, I was a little bit worried because there's almost instantly a reference to Sherlock Holmes and whoever the Bastables are. And then when Diggory is talking with Uncle Andrew, Uncle Andrew not only mentions that his godmother, who taught him about magicianship, was named Mrs. Lefay, which is a pretty obvious reference to Morgan Lefay from *The Magic. Your namesake, yeah. And he also says, like, he does
0: t- she speak English when she wants to.
1: Name drops Atlantis and says that like people had fairy blood. And I was like, oh no, these are so many things getting thrown in here. But then from there on out, I felt like the reference level of references really went down. I thought Charn, as far as I know, is not a reference to anything and was like pretty original and new and different. And I also really enjoyed that section. And then when they go to Narnia, all the references are pretty much biblical. So it's consistent. There didn't seem to be things just thrown in there to be there. And so, yeah, I definitely felt the same, that it was a much tighter book. He had a much more of an idea of what he wanted to say and do with it. And he very also clearly responds to some of the problems with uh, *Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. I thought there was a very interesting response to sexism in this book.
0: Yes, and and I do want to get to that, but I do want to, to sort of explore this idea of the references. I do think in Norse mythology, there is an idea of like an in-between realm that connects yes. all the other realms.
1: You're right. Oh, you're right. And when you're right, you're right. And you,
0: you're always right. But it's not like he explicitly calls that out and just name drops that bit of mythology into this book. And then Charn reminded me a little bit of the Jewish concept of sheol which is it's it's like a place that's just kind of a barren wasteland but it's not like it's not like hell necessarily it's just et, 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 and i'm not sure if that he was specifically going for that but it it seemed reminiscent of that But the point is, is that even if he's drawing from these references, he's embellishing on them and making them his own in the way that Tolkien did with Middle-earth. And so the world doesn't feel just like a ripoff of these other things that already exist. It feels like he's really expanding on them and he's informing them with his own ideas to make them feel fuller. That's the thing, is that Charn, even though it's completely desolate... It feels like such a full world. Like, you can feel the sense of history there. You can feel that this was a world that was full of people and its own history and its own battles and its own conflicts. And it's very effective because he doesn't really dig too much into that. He just gives us enough to give us a sense of, like, what this world used to be like. And I liked that.
1: Well, yeah, and even the biblical references felt like he made them his own. I think it's interesting that we got two scenes of temptation here, and we have the first uh, in-charn with the bell that Diggory... Diggory, not Polly! I was so happy. Uh-huh. Diggory gives in and then the second scene with the actual apple tree, and Jade is kind of playing the part of the serpent that he doesn't give into. And I thought it was such an interesting revision of the Eden moment.
0: Well, there's actually an even earlier scene of temptation. It's a lot smaller and it's not really tied to the Bible where the the godmother, Mrs. Lefay, basically presents Uncle Andrew with this magical box and says destroy it. And it's very clear that like that was not the intention of passing down this box. But that's also like there's elements of like Pandora's box there. Bit of an issue that it's always the women who are doing the tempting. Um but, you know, uh,
1: although C.S. actually, Lewis. you know what? What I would say actually the moment with Uncle Andrew and Polly and the rings is probably another moment of temptation.
0: That's where true. he's
1: inviting Polly to take one of the rings. So that is a moment of of flipped genders. But I, I think the two biggest scenes are the two with Diggory, which are both with Jadis. Uh, who is the White Witch? In case we didn't make that clear, it's the same character. And we're we're told also that Diggory is the professor. And we're told both these things fairly early on. So like we're we're all very clear on what's happening, and if you've read *Light and the Witch of the Wardrobe*.
0: Yeah, there's no mistake who these people are supposed to be, which I appreciate. I appreciate there's no dumb twist.
1: Yeah, and s- same with Diggory. You find out on page 39 of my edition that he's going to grow up and be the professor.
0: This this is kind of unrelated to anything else, but the the <laughs> there there are two moments with Polly where she's tempted. And it's the most condescending way possible because with that one moment with Uncle Andrew, the way that the uncle successfully tempts—it uh, feels really gross to put it this way—the way he tricks her, I'll say it that way. Okay. The way he tricks her is by saying, "You're such a pretty girl," you know, <laughs> and and she's like, "Oh." Well, I guess he's a sensible guy if he recognizes that I'm a pretty girl. And that's when she goes and takes the ring. And then in Charn, there's the scene where they're walking into that hall with all the the statues. And the narrative goes out of its way to say that (laughs) the thing Polly's interested in is the clothing on the statues.
1: Yes. (laughs) when i said this responded to the lion the witch and the wardrobes sexism i stand by that point that doesn't mean there's no sexism in this book so you see on multiple occasions first uncle andrew talking very derogatorily is that how you say that word i don't know um about women and then when Diggory gets mad at Polly, he'll start talking in very much the same manner. And this is shown very overtly to be a bad thing. There are multiple times where Diggory says something like, oh, that's, that's so much like a girl to act like that. And we're shown that this is bad. Most of the time when Diggory says that, he's in the wrong and Polly's in the right. And so there is this idea that like sexism is aligned with the bad characters or a character acting badly. So I think that very much responds to The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. <laughs> I definitely saw C.S. Lewis trying to be like, women, they good. He's trying really hard. Polly is, after the moment when she is tricked into taking the rings, she pretty much is in the right for the rest of the book. She's the one who's very practical and is like, let's make sure we can actually get home before we try other worlds. Let's make sure we mark our pool before we go off to other worlds. She instinctively doesn't like Jadis. She knows she's a bad person. And over and over again, you see her being correct about things. So I think that is very much a response and kind of a revision of Lion, the Wish and the Wardrobe and how that handles female characters.
0: It's also interesting, given that he wrote this book after The Last Battle, which we've said before has the infamous line about how Susan can no longer go into Narnia because she's obsessed with makeup. And then. Yeah, and I wonder if, I don't know, if he got flack about that so he kind of adjusted things a little bit. And, and it's like, I, you know, I guess an A for effort, an A for, or like on report cards for elementary school where like grades don't really matter at that point. So it's more like E for exceptional, S for satisfactory, I for improvement. So, C.S. Lewis gets a gets a strong eye for improvement from me. He's not as sexist as before.
1: Yeah, even the aunt, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment.
0: Letty, I believe.
1: Yes, something like that. There's Uncle Andrew, who is, I also think, a response to the professor character in Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe. Here we see an eccentric, older man, who is evil and bad, and... Aunt Letty, who I guess is, I can't tell if she's his sister or his wife. I'm very unclear on this.
0: I think they're siblings.
1: Uh, but yeah. Um, <laughs> so we see at first, we're given the impression that she's kind of a shrew because before Degree has this encounter with Uncle Andrew, whenever Uncle Andrew tries to talk to him, Aunt Letty will be like, oh, he doesn't need to hear anything from you. He doesn't want to have anything to do with your nonsense. And he would, would just constantly shut uncle Andrew down. So we're like led to believe that, you know, she's just kind of oppressing this man. And that's what uncle Andrew himself says later on. But then we're shown that actually, um, she was just trying to like protect degree because uncle Andrew is in fact, a really bad person who will just use other people for his own ends and then when jadis comes through uncle andrew is immediately under her sway but aunt letty stands up to her and is like someone go call the cops there's this crazy woman in my house
0: yeah then she gets thrown across the house she
1: does jadis just eats her across the house
0: the description of that is so amusing to me let me see let me see if i can find it
1: wait i found it this is where Jadis realizes that she can't use magic. Um, so upon realizing she can't use magic, uh, she did not lose her nerve even for a second. Without wasting a thought on her disappointment, she lunged forward, caught Aunt Lettie around the neck and the knees, raised her high above her head as if she had been no heavier than a doll, and threw her across the room. While Aunt Letty was still hurtling through the air, the horsemaid, who was having a beautifully exciting morning, put her head in at the door and said, "'If you please, sir,' oms come
0: that's the thing so we don't actually see Letty land until like a page later so I did write in my notes is she just still flying <laughs> is there like a a universe where where all the the rest of the book is just happening letty's just still just, just sort of through the air, flying through the air just traveling around the world and and I guess eventually she'll land but it's it was, it was an odd way of uh, telling that scene
1: but she does happily land on a mattress she was mending and we're told that uh on that was a very tough old lady aunts <sighs> often were in those days
0: yeah okay so on that note let me just say that i get what he's going for there's a kind of like golden age atmosphere he's trying to get at here and it and it does feel like very reminiscent of like the romantic writers how they would write these like elevating the countryside the rustic into something that is pure and good and wholesome and CS Lewis is definitely going for that vibe here but my god is it so grating how every every few pages he he insists on telling us things were better back then like from the start he's telling us like candy was cheaper and better back then the countryside was better back then.
1: Well, the schools were worse. <laughs>
0: the schools were worse. That's true. But everything else was better. Like everything going back is better. I just found it extremely annoying because it's just like, hey, modern times aren't that bad. You know, <laughs> there, there are some good things that come from now. And it's not like everything good is in the past.
1: And I will say, I'm somewhat amused by the fact that these books were written during the 50s, which is like the golden age that people like to call back to now. Right. It's just... So, just so...
0: (laughs) I mean, okay, this is a tangent, but you can even see in the Aeneid or whatever, Virgil is, back then, was saying like... The golden age of humanity has already passed. And it's just like, what it shows is that all these writers who romanticize the past are just full of (laughs) because... That clearly just cannot be true. But despite all saying all that, there is one line that I really, really like that. I think more effectively than any other line captures the sense of like a past innocence. And it's spoken by Strawberry. So at this point, Strawberry has been turned into Fledge the flying horse and Aslan's like, Hey, Fledge, do you mind giving these kids a ride? And Strawberry, or Fledge, or whatever—I'm just gonna call him Strawberry because that's a better name. Okay. Strawberry's like, yeah, like I don't mind. And he says, I've had things like you on my back before, long, long ago, when there were green fields and sugar. And it's like, it's told so simply, but it's so moving. And so much more effective than C.S. Lewis dropping in as the narrator being like, man, ants were a lot tougher back then. I don't, I don't even know what, what, like, that line doesn't make any sense, by the way.
1: Yes, have, have, like, ants gotten less tough? I'm very confused.
0: Very confusing. I kind of wish that, like. C.S. Lewis kind of dialed back on those on those references to the past Mm -hmm. and just really stuck with the ones that were a lot stronger, a lot more emotional. like that. There's emotion in that line from Strawberry. And that's where C.S. is is a lot more effective when he allows the emotions of the thing he's saying to take priority.
1: While we're talking about the narrator, we had talked a little bit about the narrator in Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And I was pretty sure that the narrator got a little bit less ever present as the books went on. And that definitely was the case here. I think you primarily see the narrator either coming in to tell you about who the characters are going to be going forward or, you know, elaborating on something the characters would later figure out but isn't present in this book. So for instance, he pops in to say like, the witch can't remember the in-between place, which is something Diggory figures out after this whole thing is over and then pops in with these descriptions of the past versus the present. But otherwise, it's fairly unobtrusive.
0: I agree with that. I think he does a lot more of letting the characters figure out the exposition yes. <laughs> rather than dropping that in himself, which is actually effective because like, there are moments where Dig figures out like how this bit of magic works or how these portals work or whatever. And as he's learning you're learning with him and so you're forming that you're forming more of a connection with diggory as a character and and so that's a lot more effective the writing is just so much stronger in this and like the ability to connect with characters and to really appreciate characters is is a lot stronger in this than it was in the previous book where you were kind of just told to like a character because a character is likable
1: Right, and I think in terms of, like, redemption arcs, if you want to talk about Diggory versus Edmund, obviously Edmund does a lot worse stuff, and I guess his redemption is also bigger because he has that whole thing where he fights the White Witch and, like, single-handedly, like, breaks her magic wand. Mm -hmm. But we get more nuance with Diggory of, like, we see him as this good little boy who really just is sad about being in the city. He's sad about his mom being sick. And you see him have these, like, flashes of anger. And at least for me, like, reading between the lines, I could see that he just felt so helpless all the time. And that part of it, that anger, was because of that. And so when you see him in the second temptation scene resist Jadis and not take the apple and, like, realize how much he's giving up, he thinks... I I think you feel so much more connected to him and you have a much better understanding of, like, his emotional state and how his life is affecting his choices in these other worlds. And you have less of the emotional connection to Polly, but I also think you get to like her more as, like, a normal little girl instead of, I think, Lucy is presented very much as this perfect little girl in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Polly's not perfect.
0: She likes clothing.
1: She likes clothing. She likes pretty sparkly rings. And, you know, like, she and Dickory get into... numerous little squabbles and that's shown to be like normal and like you see them making up from those afterwards and you get much more connected to these two as friends and i was like very invested in the fact that they stay friends when at the end of the book we hear that she visits his house every summer i was like that's so cute
0: i agree whole freaking heartedly i mean c.s lewis definitely got better at writing kids and writing how kids interact and you really feel for the kids. I I feel like this sort of conceit of Diggory having a sick mom, it it feels a little cheap, I'll say. And I know that he's drawing that C.S. Lewis is drawing from his own experience because his mom was sick when he was a kid and, and sadly she died. i But it's kind of just dropped in there. It's like, oh, Diggory has a sick mom, and we don't actually really get to see the mom ever. Not even in, like, flashbacks or thinking about, like, what it used to be. So, in some ways, maybe this makes me sound heartless, but that that whole uh, tragic backstory kind of falls flat for me, because we don't actually see much of that relationship. We're just told his mom is sick and he's sad. and, And... It's not as effective for me, but it's still more than understandable of like, yeah, that's a great motivation for this character. It explains why he wants to sort of pursue this. And when he gets in the most obvious bit of foreshadowing, so much so that the narrator specifically calls it out before it's dropped when he finds out that there are other worlds and that other worlds might have means of curing his mom. I get it. I'm with that. I'm following that. And I and I agree with you that at the end, when he has to resist the temptation, and especially Jadis is making some pretty effective arguments that, like, this will help your mom. Resisting that temptation must have been monumental, and, and you're with that. Personally, okay, this will definitely make me sound heartless. I would have preferred, if there were some actual consequences to resisting the temptation... Basically, the mom should have died. In fact, the mom should have died while the kid was away in Narnia. You have that look in your eyes from the forest. And you called me a monster. You are a monster. Yes, I am. To really oh just my god. Re- just twist that knife in. That's I too mean-
1: far. I mean, <laughs> I I was actually thinking about this, and I was like, I think it would have been more effective if he didn't bring a apple back and she just happened to miraculously get better on her own. And it was like he never needed to do that. And I think that that could have been strong in saying, like, you know. Like, yeah, he, he accepted the consequence of, like, by not taking the apple, he was leaving his mom's fate in, shall we say, God's hands. It could have been a... I don't know. I think that, that could have been effective if he if she just come, recovered on her own. I mean, I understand why C.S. Lewis didn't want to kill the mom in his children's <laughs> book and have that be, like, a consequence of the kid, like, not...
0: <laughs> Especially given that the, the mom, like, is a... Probably in some way a stand-in for his own mom.
1: Yeah, he just wanted to like let the mom live. So like, I I do feel like maybe the second Apple I wasn't as big a fan of, but then he got to plant it and it became the wardrobe, and I was like, that's kind of cool. I was actually kind of down for that weird bit of nitpicky revisionism. <laughs> I I'm not
0: as I I'm not as much of a fan. It's fine. It's not the worst kind of fan service I've ever seen. I will
1: say. I think that then it makes it more confusing in, like, Prince Caspian when, like, the kids are, they are on a train and then just, like, (laughs) manage to disappear for no reason. I'm like, is the train metal from Narnia? I think it leaves open other doors. But I think he's trying to say that, like, the wardrobe being in this world is what left there a permanent door that didn't have to go through the in-between place. And I'm like, okay, fine.
0: Yeah, I will say, you, you know how I like emotional torture, so I did just want the mom to die. <laughs> to really just dig it in to dig that he could have saved his mom, but he, he resisted temptation for Aslan's sake and just developed a little kernel of bitterness against Aslan and Narnia <laughs> that, that would grow into my fan fiction that I will write after this about how the professor goes back to narnia to enact revenge against aslam anyway (laughs)
1: but i do
0: i do want to comment on something you said about leaving the fate of things in god's hands and something i want to explore with you because i'm very curious what the heck is the theology of this book because there is one part when at the end diggory successfully resists Jadis' Entreaties, where he says, I just want to live an ordinary life for a normal amount of time and die and go to heaven. And heaven's capitalized, so you know we're talking about the OG Christian heaven here. So I guess my question is, is Aslan God?
1: I I feel like this is going to be another time where I'm like, I know the answer from another book. (laughs) I'm pretty sure her a fact. They have a discussion at the end of Voyage of Don Treader where Lucy's like, I am i don't want to like be banned from coming back to Narnia because then I'll never see you again. He's like, but you will. You'll see me with a different name and face, but I'm in your world too. So I think the idea is he... It's like how, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all separate, but they're all the same.
0: Yeah, I think
1: Aslan is just another incarnation of the Christian God.
0: Yeah. So what's what's the, what's the word for a, a four-way trinity? There's you know the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and Aslan.
1: A quartet? Quartet? I guess it's just a quartet, right?
0: Okay, I like that. The Holy Quartet. It's the. I feel like they're gonna walk into a barber shop and start singing. <laughs> Catch part two next week on Reread. See you then.